Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of great articles to talk about with you today, so let's get started. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Our first link comes to us via Vice. This article by <laughs> Jalissa Castrodale is called Old Paintings Reveal How Fruits and Vegetables Have Evolved Over the Centuries. Ooh. And the subhead is worth reading verbatim as well. A biologist and an art historian are studying how old ass still life paintings can trace the evolution <laughs> of modern produce. <laughs> that is from Vice, isn't it? That's yeah. right. <laughs> Basically, this kind of goes into this work that has been done between Yves de Smet, a plant biologist in Belgium, and David Vergoen, a Belgian art history lecturer. And they've basically been studying fruits and vegetables depicted in paintings and using those artworks to determine how plant-based foods have evolved over the years. They're calling this approach hashtag art genetics. <laughs> it's got to be a hashtag, doesn't it? That's yeah. right. I mean, that's how all the good new theories get into the mainstream, right? You just hashtag it. Mm -hmm. So it goes into a little bit about how art historians have looked over different art. And it starts off with, uh, are you guys familiar with Hieronymus Bosch and the Garden of Earthly Delights? I am, yes. weirdly, yeah. I mean, it's so weird that I think most people are familiar with it, but it has a triptych that shows Adam and Eve in the first panel, and then an orgiastic tangle of assorted pleasures in the center, and then a terrifying third scene that has a dark hellscape where humans are tortured and devoured whole by a bird-headed being, and at least at least one person ends up with a woodwind <laughs> instrument in their butt. Right? Yes, at least one. <laughs> But the middle panel has so many strawberries that one historian named the entire thing strawberry plant while it was listed as the strawberry in the late 16th century inventory of Philip II of Spain's art collection. Huh. And the meaning of the importance of the strawberries has been debated. There are other links that you can kind of follow on that. But even the size aside, because most of the strawberries are bigger than the humans trying to eat them in the painting, the biologists and the art historian that we talked about are thinking that this is probably a pretty accurate 16th century strawberry. Because plant-based foods are depicted quite lavishly by thousands of artists throughout the ages, it can offer a lot of insight into the evolution of shapes and colors of our modern-day groceries. They basically are looking at this information to try to figure out how, when, and where particular varieties emerged, how common they were, and what correlation existed between food habits, trade routes, and newly conquered lands. So they're thinking that, like, I mean, these are not grotesquely, comically large strawberries. Strawberries were <laughs> actually that big. <laughs> it was more that, you know, the size was probably a bit of artistic license, but the accuracy of seed placement, right. leaves and things like that, that's what they're mostly looking at. And that's just one example. The painting that started it all is an oil painting in a St. Petersburg Museum by Franz Snyder called Obstand, which is the fruit stall. And they were basically just trying to ID all the fruits that were filling out of the baskets. There was one weird looking melon and there was some discussion about maybe that's just what watermelons looked like at the time. And then hmm. another critic said, no, maybe this guy is just crap at painting fruit. <laughs> right. You can never tell. <laughs> you can't. I mean, you know, there's like I said, maybe it's artistic license. Maybe it's a little bit of a 
facsimile, but eventually they concluded, no, this artist is actually quite talented. So they started considering maybe these paintings are resources for tracing the appearance of fruits and vegetables and how they've changed over the years. And there are advantages to considering this, right? Examining artwork is definitely cheaper and way more accessible than doing an archaeological study. And it's also less reliant on context and language limitations than written descriptions in historical texts. For example, how was an orange item described in the 10th century? Because the word orange to describe the color was only used from the 15th century onwards. Hmm. Those types of little like linguistic evolutions or appearances can kind of derail or disrupt a way to kind of identify these if you're just looking at text. And they've encountered some challenges as they've been going through this, right? There are low-res pictures in museums' online catalogs, and there's some bad back-end content management, right? They don't have as many fruit or vegetable-related keywords and search terms, so it's not as easy for them to kind of look it out. So they're outsourcing it, just like a lot of science is doing right now. They're asking the rest of us to share pictures of art collected from trips to a museum, a castle, or a mansion in an attempt to build their own open access database. Hmm. But you don't have to send any of the Hieronymus Bosch big strawberries. They got those. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. They're looking for the obscure portrait that just happens to have some fruit in the background. Exactly. They've got a great picture that kind of kicks off the article, too, that shows a watermelon that's just riddled with black seeds, which I think is one of the things that I remember reading in other articles just across the web where watermelons had been not quite as tasty as they are now because, you know, we've obviously bred them to be seedless or at Mm -hmm. least have fewer seeds in a smaller concentration. Yeah, that's one of those things that I always, I just have it in the back of my mind as a thing that annoys me. Anytime there's like a Greek or Roman like period piece kind of thing, like Spartacus or whatever, and they've got the Caesar leaning back and being fed grapes, and I'm sitting there going, he's not spitting out the seeds, it's not right. Like Grapes are supposed to have seeds, and we've almost forgotten that because they're all seedless now in the grocery store. Yeah, but that's not what you capture in a painting that takes hours to construct. Right. I'm just demanding accuracy from Netflix. I'm not saying Hieronymus <laughs> Bosch should have worked harder on his painting. To <laughs> fair, we should all demand greater degrees of accuracy. I think that's pretty fair. Right. Next link. Next link. So this article comes to us from Scientific American, and it is titled, Why Did the Wright Brothers Succeed When Others Failed? They were not actually trained as engineers, but they were raised to have an insatiable intellectual curiosity. Yeah. So the fact that two bicycle salesmen from Dayton, Ohio, were the first people to fly over a century ago. Wait, they were bicycle salesmen? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I knew that. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. They're bicycle salesmen, and that is how they made their money to build their own planes. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So when they were first doing their exhibitions, they were just soaring over slack-jawed crowds at public (laughs) exhibitions in the U.S. and France. You know, it was like nobody really thought it was going to come from these guys. So (laughs) their accomplishment really challenges the 21st century conviction that aspiring young engineers should only focus narrowly on STEM disciplines in college and that courses in the arts and humanities are just not as important as those in math and science. Yeah, that's fair. Interdisciplinary thinking Mm -hmm. can always lead to out-of-the-box kind of solutions or just trying things that are not generally accepted, but bicycle salesmen, I'm still reeling from that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I think it may also indicate a little bit about 
who got to go to school, like whether you were really smart or not. If you didn't have the money to travel and go to the very big expensive college, you were stuck in your hometown doing what you had to do. Definitely. So it also speaks, I think, to the idea that, yeah, you should seek out talent and give it an opportunity to do something cool. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Neither brother went to college. Neither had any formal technical training. And at the same time that the Wrights were designing and testing their flying machine that worked, Samuel Langley, who is a university professor and secretary at the Smithsonian Institution, was also designing his. And on its maiden flight, the aerodrome plunged into the Potomac River while attempting takeoff. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this article goes a little bit into some of the reflections that they've had. So Orville Wright, 31 years after their first famous flight, a journalist had told him in an interview that he and his brother actually embodied the American dream. You know, they are two humble boys mm-hmm. with no money, no influence, and no other special advantages. And Orville did say, but it isn't true. We did have unusual advantages in childhood, without which I doubt we could have accomplished much. The greatest thing in our favor was growing up in a family where there was always much encouragement to intellectual curiosity. If my father had not been the kind who encouraged his children to pursue intellectual interests without any thought of profit, our early curiosity about flying would have been nipped too early to bear fruit. Mm -hmm. And so the article goes into Wright's father a little bit whose name was Milton, he was a bishop with a zeal for books and inquiry of all sorts. His wife, Susan, was a mechanical whiz who had studied math, science, and literature in college and often actually built toys for the right children. The bookshelves in their home were filled with novels, poetry, ancient history, scientific treaties. These parents really encouraged their children to read widely and just take responsibility for their own education. Mm-hmm. So and cool. Yeah. So when the Wright brothers were asked about their early interest in flight, they always said they just got interested in it for fun. Yeah. They were adrenaline junkies, basically. They were like, wouldn't this be yeah. awesome? It was yeah, like an yeah. early century like jackass that happened to discover <laughs> and crack the... You know what I mean? Like, yeah, basically absolutely. Basically just like creating a bunch of like, let's Try this wacky thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So in uh, his late 20s, Wilbur Wright began reading books on the anatomy of birds and animal locomotion, which would eventually lead the Wrights to develop their innovative three-axis control system, which actually mimicked the torsional movement of bird wings. And Wilbur soon wrote a letter to the Smithsonian Institution to request pamphlets, which were published by Samuel Langley and Octave Chanute on aerodynamics. And he said, I am an enthusiast, but not a crank, in the sense that I have some pet theories as to the proper construction of a flying machine. Shortly after that, the brothers began conducting their experiments in North Carolina, and they discovered that the tables of air pressure data that were provided by the Smithsonian scientists were actually, quote, unreliable and riddled with errors. (laughs) So, yeah, so they just went about and set up their own wind tunnel to acquire accurate measurements, which they later described as doing just for fun out of learning new truths. They also built their own motor with the aid of their bicycle shop assistant Mm -hmm. when no engine manufacturers would respond to their inquiries about building one small enough to fit in their flyer. (gasps) And they would often argue about the technical specifications of their craft like late into the night. So after one particularly heated argument about the proper construction of propellers, they found themselves in the situation of each having been converted to the other's original position (laughs) in the argument, but still disagreeing. (laughs) 
And they said that they argued because they sought truth, not because one brother desired to win a victory over mm-hmm. the other. Sure. They described that the problem could not be solved by stumbling upon a secret, but by the patient accumulation of information upon a hundred different points, some of which an investigator would naturally think it unnecessary to go into deeply. Right. It's a process, not just some yeah. eureka moment. Yeah. This is yeah. probably a better understanding of the actual scientific process than a lot of other bicycle salesmen or just, you know, <laughs> people that we think of these days, right? Like it yeah. takes a lot of information gathering, a lot of failure, a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Do you think, did the Smithsonian give them botched data on purpose because they were basically running a competitive experiment? Well, considering that Langley's aerodrome crashed into the Potomac, I think <laughs> right. that it might be the latter. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so aviation pioneer Octave Chanute predicted in a speech in 1890 that no one man was likely to possess the imagination, mechanical acuity, mathematical capability, and fundraising skill necessary to solve the problem of flight. Well, he was technically right. It took two people. I mean... (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So the article ends by saying, like, hey, if today's schools of engineering want to give their students the extra push they need, they would do well to broaden their notoriously strict curricular requirements and encourage students to cultivate the same love of learning that the Wright brothers have. Mm -hmm. Amen. Get get those art classes back in there. Yeah, absolutely. Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, this one comes from Undark.coms by Sandeep Honda. It's called In Social Insects, Researchers Find Hints for Controlling Disease. And there are a lot of social insects, bees and termites, but the main insect discussed in this article is ants. One of the reasons they're kind of an interesting analog for human diseases is they have some of the densest populations. Ants can have as many members in as dense a configuration as New York City. Whoa. In the wild. They don't really happen that way in the lab. Uh, (laughs) But the thing that researchers noticed was you almost never see an ant colony wiped out by infectious pathogens. And someone finally decided to really look into it. A University of Bristol researcher named Natalie, I'm going to say Stroymite. There's a lot of extra letters in that name, so I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) But she decided to actually visibly track the social movements of the ants within a colony. And so what she did, logically, was glue tiny little QR codes onto the backs (gasps) of thousands of ants. Each one of these little things is less than a millimeter. They look like they're running around with little backpacks. They've got a video in there. It's really cute. (laughs) But basically, by doing that and then putting a camera facing downward on what's called an observation box, so they're not really able to dig into the dirt. They're all running on a flat surface. They were able to follow every individual ant as it moved around and interacted with other ants. So and they did contact tracing, essentially. Right, right. And I mean, and this should be noted, on thousands of ants, Stroymite estimates she can personally saddle 500 ants with QR codes in a 12-hour day. Uh, so, <laughs> so she spent a lot of time gluing little bits of paper to the backs of these ants. And once she had them all tagged up, she observed 22 colonies. And what she discovered is that ant job assignments are actually pretty compartmentalized. Right. When you look at the colony, it looks like everybody's just running around doing everything. But when you actually track individual ants, she found that, you know, there's ones that guard the entrance. There's ones that gather food. There's ones that attend to the queen and they pretty much stick to their job. And Mm. because they have these Mm. kind of set paths and regions of the colony, each ant tended to only interact with a few ants. And so they theorized, okay, well, this probably helps them not spread disease. It's basically they have their little social bubbles, right? Yeah. And the big critical thing was that when she infected half of the 22 colonies with a deadly fungus called Metarhysium bruneum, the ants actually became significantly more isolated. 
They sort of instinctively oh. or evolutionary, huh. they don't really know the mechanism, but at once the pathogen was in the colony, they drew back and stopped interacting with each other even more so. Somehow even uninfected ants would get the message, hey, we're all socially isolating right now. And she notes that ants have a lot of other self-sustaining habits, right? Ants are known to be meticulously clean. They'll carry dead bodies away immediately. They've done other studies where, like, if they paint an ant with the dead ant pheromone, even if it's very clearly alive, ants will carry it out and dump it outside the colony, and it comes (gasps) back in, and they carry it out and dump it. Like, they're just like, nope, you're dead. Get out. (laughs) Wow. She said some ant species are known to gather antimicrobial tree resins and bring them inside and spread them all around the colony, like just sort of paint the walls with antimicrobial stuff. Like medicine. Yeah. Or at least antiseptic. Yeah. And, like, if a black (laughs) carpenter ant recovers from an infection, they then increase their grooming behavior. Like somehow they know that they got better and that they have immunity to this disease. And so they go around and do a whole lot more of these mouth to mouth interactions with other ants that they've now shown are passing on antibodies. Wow. It's basically using the same kind of like viral spread to promote viral immunity. Right. And that's exactly one of the points the article makes is they say, you know, this demonstrates that isolation by itself isn't the answer because social interaction, while it does make us susceptible to infecting one another, it also gives us the tools for surviving and overcoming those infections, right? Mm -hmm. There's another researcher mentioned in here that we've actually talked about before on the podcast, Nina Pfefferman, who is a professor at the University of Tennessee. She's the one who studied the outbreak of the bug in World of Warcraft that we talked about several months ago. And so she's still out there doing her thing. She studies bugs a whole lot as well. And she noted, for example, that termites have a particular strategy where as soon as an infection is detected in their hive or their colony, they immediately go and eat all their young. And (gasps) she said, and that basically it's because as in humans, young termites are highly susceptible, but pretty unlikely to die from an infection, which means that they'll all get infected and they'll act as this long-term infection reservoir that will continue to infect older termites. Kind of like sending our kids back to school at the height of a pandemic, although we're definitely not advocating any kind of Jonathan Swift solution. (laughs) Well, that's what they said. They said human societies are unlikely to adopt cannibalism as a public health strategy, (laughs) which is true. Uh, But she said it's akin to school closures, right? When you close the schools, you're not doing it to save the kids. You're doing it to save all the people the kids are going to infect. Yes. And uh, Pfefferman is now working on a model to determine the most effective way to deliver limited medicine or vaccines, basically like which members of the colony give you the most bang for your buck in terms of protection. And again, she's Mm -hmm. looking at how the insects already do it and then translating Mm -hmm. that into how can we do that in our you know, businesses or in our cities. She said she regularly consults with companies, but even though it's completely based on ant models, she doesn't tell them that. (laughs) (laughs) She was quoted as saying, I'd never run into a public health meeting and be like, guys, bugs (laughs) (laughs) well i mean the fact that they've figured this out on some kind of instinctive level kind of makes me want to prod our scientists to look into pheromone communication a little stronger so that we might be able to change some minds and trigger some kind of behavior of no no no, you do need to self-isolate you do need to protect people who are vulnerable like there's some good communal thinking there and if pheromones are the answer i say give us all a bunch of perfume to just behave a little better well or just put qr codes on everybody's heads and get the drones to track where we're going. And we'll, uh... well, we've got TikTok. That's kind of an analog for that situation That's right. now, right? That's right. We're being tracked. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. 
All right. Good news, everybody. The Guardian is happy to report that scientists have solved the mystery behind body odor. Oh, thank Woo-hoo! goodness! <laughs> University of York researchers have traced the source of underarm aromas to a particular enzyme. Hmm. They basically transferred it to an innocent member of the underarm microbe community <laughs> and found that it began to emanate bad smells. Huh. And so this work is obviously going to pave the way for more effective deodorants and antiperspirants. It's also worth pointing out that this study was done in conjunction with Unilever, which is not to say that it's necessarily not worth paying attention to, but they have a vested interest, you know, to make sure that this is going to be something that's effective and works, right? Sure. I mean, they'll make money off of a deodorant that works better. Exactly right. Yeah. The research was a collaboration with them. So it basically raises new possibilities for deodorants that target only the most active BO producing microbes while leaving the rest of the underarm microbial community untouched. So it might be longer lasting because it's more selective and then we don't have to completely disrupt the rest of our bacterial colonies, which can produce a lot of really good benefits when we're not just annihilating all of them. Right, right. right. No, I mean, I read a thing a while back that was talking about how mouthwash, while it kills the the microbes that cause bad breath when you use it, it then actually leaves you more susceptible to reinfecting it in the same way when you take antibiotics, you sort of wipe the slate clean and you give yourself the opportunity Mm. for pathogenic infections. They say mouthwash is sort of this cycle that continues the need Mm -hmm. for mouthwash, which is not surprising. Exactly. Yeah. And it's easy to see how you could kind of extrapolate that to the underarm region. Yeah, absolutely. But so, I mean, so they think they can make a deodorant that doesn't kill the microbe. It only breaks down that enzyme and then the microbes can just kind of keep hanging out there. I think that's what they're thinking of. Huh. The bacteria basically creates these fetid fumes when they consume an odorless compound called cisgly3m3sh, which is released by sweat glands in the armpit. So we're basically releasing this nectar that a microbe (laughs) is then consuming and then kind of farting out and bam, you've got B.O. (laughs) Hooray for human progress. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like Viagra was discovered because they thought it was a heart medicine. If this is... (laughs) If this gets rid of BO, it's like that's maybe not the most pressing medical issue, but I'm not going to complain. It's all right. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, any silver lining right now, it glints brighter than gold. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. Also on topic, this article comes to us from gizmodo.com, and it is titled, A Medieval Potion Proves Its Worth as an Effective Bacteria Killer. Mm, Yes. Yeah. What's in it? So, uh, (laughs) Tell me now. (laughs) (laughs) Garlic, onion wine, and a dash of bovine bile. Oh, Oh. that's a little harder to get a hold of. (laughs) No, I I can't kitchen witch this right now. (laughs) Yeah, you'd need a bigger garden, I guess. Uh... A thousand-year-old recipe to treat eye infections could lead to an unorthodox way of combating antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. And as this article calls it, it is a veritable witch's brew, but it is a medieval recipe called Bald's Eye Salve, (laughs) and it's effective at staving off several nasty strains of bacteria, including those that have evolved to become resistant to antibiotics. Whoa. Wait, so this ancient recipe is kind of leapfrogging some... I I mean, maybe they forgot how to fight off that ancient medieval recipe since they got used to the good modern drugs or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, possibly. Cassandra Quave is a ethnobotanist at Emory University who wasn't involved in this new research, but she says that plants have been used as medicines against infection for millennia, Mm -hmm. and we've only just scratched the surface in understanding their true potential. Mm. 
This study is exciting because it demonstrates how mixtures of specific plant ingredients, such as those found in Bald's ISAV, can sometimes work better than individual components in fighting infection. So they're so, just going to ignore the bovine bile, like that wasn't an active ingredient despite <laughs> being the most horrific. We're really focusing on the plants here. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, the fascinating thing is that the potency of Bald's ISAV can't actually be whittled down to a single ingredient. For it to work, all of the ingredients had to be present, mm -hmm. which highlighted the importance of studying the combinations of compounds, which also really makes me feel like it deserves the title of a potion. Right, like, right. As individual pieces, like who cares when you throw them together and boom, suddenly you have a magic antibiotic. <laughs> yeah. So this study is a continuation of previous research that was conducted by Christina Lee from the School of English at the University of Nottingham. And she's been studying Ball's Leech Book, which is an early Anglo-Saxon medical textbook and it was written around 905 wow. and was found in the British Library. And so, intrigued by this ISAV, Lee, with the help of other experts, discovered that the lotion was surprisingly effective as an antibacterial compound against Staphylococcus oh. aureus, mm -hmm. or uh, MRSA, which is a staph that can cause serious and even fatal in infections. Yeah, MRSA is a big yeah. deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for the new study, Harrison and her co-authors recreated the brew and tested it against five different bacterial strains, including planktonic bacteria and biofilms. It was applied to soft tissue models of infections, such as those often found in war wounds, uh, linked to lung infections, to mm -hmm. surgical infections, associated with infections like tonsillitis, scarlet fever, cellulitis. Also, the bacteria found in diabetic foot ulcers, and all of these have shown varying degrees of resistance to uh, standard antibiotics. So these tests demonstrate promising antibacterial activity, whether they were in the planktonic or biofilm form. And they also said that the medieval mixture wasn't harmful to human cells, as gross as bovine right. bile might be. <laughs> Just put it uh, in your eye. It's not going to hurt it. Yeah. <laughs> and it suggests that the compound could be reconstituted as a effective treatment for infections. But as to how it works, that's still a bit of a mystery. Garlic contains allicin, which, while it's effective against planktonic forms of bacteria, is not very effective at tackling biofilms, mm -hmm. like the kind of bacteria seen in foot mm -hmm. ulcers. The researchers say that really the ISAV is the sum of its parts. I mean, what you're telling us is that this bald person was experimenting and figuring out exactly the right ingredients, and he was basically like a bicycle salesman of his day, right? Like he had to <laughs> yeah. put everything together and figure it out slowly over time. Yeah, absolutely. And this isn't the first time that scientists have actually found value in old-timey medicines. Uh, <laughs> last year, Quave co-authored a paper investigating medical plants used during the U.S. Civil War. And the remedies, which were found in a Confederate Civil War field guide, described three plant-based topical remedies, all of which exhibited antimicrobial potential. Right. So we're picking up some interesting strands from history. And I personally believe that we've lost a lot of things that could be effective if reimagined in a modern medical context. So this is a really interesting article. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, and it makes sense as well, because if you think about, okay, these were the compounds everybody was using back then, the bacteria could have developed a resistance to it. And then you sort of get this general sense of like, oh, it's an old wives tale. It doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work because they uh, evolved yeah. immunity to mm. it. So we brought in all these fancy new compounds. Oh, this is the real stuff that works. 
Now that stuff has mm-hmm. stopped working, but we can go back to the old stuff, which it turns out did work. They just used it for mm-hmm. too long. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We could create possibly a semi-permanent cycle out yeah. of that and just keep transitioning between things. As so long that's as really we cool. still have the plants, we got to make sure yeah. that those still <laughs> proliferate. And the cows. Yes, yes. Yeah, we need the cows. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, I am apparently on a bit of a thematic kick today. I didn't realize it till just now. But uh, this next (laughs) article from CBS News is called Zombie Cicadas Infected with Mind-Controlling Fungus Return to West Virginia. So, no, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic. <laughs> so first, it's worth noting that cicadas as an insect are weird. Oh, uh, yeah. At birth, they burrow underground. They live there for more than a decade, just sort of slowly metabolizing and eating off of tree roots. And then at this predetermined moment of adulthood, the entire swarm emerges all at once for a massive mating season. And there are two major broods in the U.S. which are on 13-year and 17-year cycles. They know exactly when it's going to happen, but it isn't on a completely even cycle because you've got 13-year and 17-year in the mix. And also, those Mm -hmm. broods somehow became staggered around the country. So, like, West Virginia's 17-year brood is not going to pop at the same time as Kentucky's 17-year brood or whatever. But right at this moment, a batch of 17-year cicadas are emerging in West Virginia. Scientists have run over. They're all studying them as quickly as they can before they're gone for another 17 years. And a new study has just come out on this parasitic fungus that acts on cicadas. Uh, They've known about it for a while. It's called Massospora. And the researchers describe it as a disturbing display of B-horror movie proportions. Basically, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty gross. Basically, the spores start to grow on the cicada's abdomen. They eat away at the genitalia, the butts, and the entire abdomen of the cicada until eventually the entire lower half of their body falls off and is replaced oh. with like this big lump of fungus on the second, the lower nope. half of their body. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. So no, no. it's uh, pretty bad for the cicadas. It doesn't hurt us. It's, cicadas <laughs> don't hurt us either. It's just sort of a sad thing we're watching. But the cicadas <sighs> live for a surprisingly long time despite this infection and generally just sort of fly around acting like nothing is wrong. And so the reason. Wait, I'm sorry. Yeah. Wait, they live as like only the top half of their body, like their big. Yeah. Wait. Because. Is is that what. I mean, the thing is, they don't have to survive that long after they come out of the ground. That's sort of their last hurrah anyway. Their job Uh at that point is just to run around, eat a whole bunch, mate a whole bunch. And then lay the next generation, which is going to go underground. Which they need a lower half to do for all of those. Well, and so that's the really fascinating thing. They sort of were like, what is going on with this fungus? And the researchers have now figured out that, first of all, Massaspora contains psilocybin, which is the uh, magic ingredient in magic mushrooms. Yes. And it takes over elements of the cicada's brains and controls their behavior, which is why they call them zombie cicadas. Oh, yeah. Wait, the trip keeps them going? Oh, yes. And it doesn't just do that. It makes them behave (laughs) in very particular ways that is beneficial to the fungus. So (gasps) the crucial behavior change that they've just identified is that when a male cicada is infected with this fungus, it will start to flap its wings in a particular motion that only female cicadas do, as if it is trying to attract a mate. And this male cicada flapping its wings like a female cicada will draw in a bunch of other male cicadas. And as they try Uh to mate with this infected cicada that's got a bunch of fungus all over its butt, 
it passes the infection on effectively as an <gasps> STD. Oh wow. my gosh. The fungus is truly controlling the cicada and making it do things it would not otherwise choose to do. And very specific things too. Right. I mean, it's like the fungus somehow cracked the genetic code or made the cicada crack its own genetic code to access like a female behavior. Right. Like that. Yeah, like is... a Bugs Bunny cartoon when he's trying to trap <laughs> Elmer Fudd and he gets the yeah. lipstick on and he does the like, over here. <laughs> he's dressed up in the pretty little dress. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this does read like a horror movie, but I don't know why I'd call it B-grade. Like, I could see this as a direct-to-Netflix original release kind of situation. (laughs) This is high-quality horror here. Wow. And they they note there are several other examples of this sort of thing in the parasitic infection world. Toxoplasmosis is a bacteria that Mm -hmm. will infect mice, and it makes the mice not scared of cats so that Mm -hmm. the mice can then infect the cats. Uh, And they've actually Mm -hmm. done some studies even in humans, and this is super scary. Mm -hmm. Uh, The flu will make people behave more sociably than they normally would. Like, they've studied people as they get the flu, not necessarily once they're sick, but in that sort of week of contagion where they're not yet feeling the symptoms, they will go out to parties and go hang out with friends more often than that person normally would have, which is really kind of crazy. If you're like, we're only being controlled by infections that we don't even know we have. Like, it really destroys your sense of self to a certain degree. I'm going to need a minute after this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm already not leaving the house, but uh, this is definitely going to keep me here a lot longer. Good Lord. <laughs> well, and, you know, the nice thing about the massospore is at least if the cicadas were smart enough, they could look and say, oh, no, that dude's infected. Like, we can't even tell when we're infected with stuff, so... I'm telling you, we need the pheromones. Right. We need the pheromones <laughs> to be like, yo, yo, you need to stay away from That's this right. one. This one is not okay. It's actually missing the lower half of its body. Well, and for all <laughs> we know, like body odor is part of those pheromones and we're just destroying ourselves by trying to get rid of it. <gasps> <laughs> oh no, that enzyme is actually an early detection system right. of something that we need to actually know about. You can't, <laughs> can't go messing with nature, man. It's always going to win. We are never going to learn that lesson. No, Jennifer. no, we're never. No. Uh. <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, Neuroskeptic writes at discovermagazine.com that there is a new theory of dreaming that is riddled with, I mean, Neuroskeptic is definitely writing as a skeptic here, but, you know, we still don't understand why we dream, right? Mm -hmm. Psychologists and neuroscientists, we've been debating the function of them, but there's still no accepted answer. But there are two gentlemen, let's see, David (laughs) M. Eagleman and Don A. Vaughn. Mm -hmm which is Don A. Dot, not Donovan, Don A. Vaughn. They've proposed a new theory, and it's a pre-pent article, which has not yet been Mm -hmm. (laughs) peer-reviewed. The context they're laying in here is very clear, but it's called the defensive activation theory, dreaming as a mechanism to prevent takeover of the visual cortex. It's a very original and creative theory. Neuroskeptic notes, I'm not convinced by it, but here's the theory in a nutshell. The role of dreams is to ensure that the brain's visual cortex is stimulated during sleep. Otherwise, if the visual system were deprived of input all night long, the visual cortex's function might degrade. Oh, so like one of those things, like they've done studies where people are blind at birth, but only because of a specific problem. And when they Mm -hmm. correct that problem, in theory, they should be able to see, but they can't always because those pathways in the brain have just given up. That's exactly right. So, um, and they even mentioned this, like the brain's occipital load can start to respond to non-visual signals if it's deprived of visual input. And they even cite in blind people, Mm. the occipital lobe strongly responds to touch. And so this 
rewiring or repurposing of underutilized brain areas is a form of neuroplasticity, which we generally think of as a good thing, right? You can rewire yourself, you can learn better, healthier, optimized habits. But for the visual system, neuroplasticity might pose a threat, according to these two theorists, because vision, unlike our other senses, is not active all of the time. Mm. Like if we're in a dark place or we're sleeping at night, we get little or no visual input. So as the theory goes, our visual cortex would be vulnerable to take over by other senses every single night, which could cause a lot of sensory input problems. We don't get rest. And so they're thinking dreams in this view are our brain's way of defending the integrity of our visual system by keeping it active. So hmm. it's basically like, uh, keep looking at something so we don't lose right. that visual processing to something else. Neuroskeptic, the author, loves the ingenuity of this theory, but doesn't really buy it. We know that dreams are associated with stimulation of the occipital cortex during REM sleep. So it is true that dreams do stimulate the visual system, but it's not really clear whether this is the main purpose of dreams, just to keep that visual system active. Yeah. I mean, if you're asleep, presumably the room is also pretty silent, but our hearing parts of our brain don't get rewired to be used for something else. A super true, right? They also note that this theory only makes sense if neuroplastic repurposing of the cortex happens very quickly. Mm. And so for the visual cortex to need defending, harmful neuroplasticity would need to occur in the space of just a few hours. And while the authors do discuss evidence that rapid neuroplasticity can occur, they don't really show any evidence that these rapid changes are strong enough to be harmful, and they don't really discuss any direct evidence for the dreams as defense. So the connection of these is, you know, obviously it hasn't been peer-reviewed, this is a preprint. the article hasn't fully been published, but some of the data they showed just felt incomplete. Like they show a correlation between the amount of REM sleep and the pace of development among primate species. And primates whose babies learn to walk faster and reach maturity faster have less REM. And humans were the slowest maturing primates. We have the most REM. Mm. So the idea that faster development means slower neuroplasticity and slower neuroplasticity means less need to protect the visual cortex from encroachment. But this is pretty circumstantial. Like the authors even cite some other indirect evidence, but they admit that, quote, the present hypothesis could be tested more thoroughly with direct measures of cortical plasticity. So they're thinking another way to test this would be to take a group of human volunteers, give them an fMRI scan at baseline just to establish the extent of their visual cortex and how visually selective it is. And then for 24 hours, half of the volunteers wear a blindfold mm -hmm. to produce visual deprivation. Half would have their REM sleep disrupted during the night. Haven't they already shown that like consistently disrupting your REM sleep brings on psychosis in like a very short period of time? Like that does that seems like a that uh, seems plausible yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I think hallucinations start around day. Four. Right. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> you seem like you're saying this from personal experience. Yeah, I trust your authority on this very much. Yeah. I've done a fair amount of reading on it. I've never pushed myself right. that far, but I find the idea of sleep-deprived based hallucinations very interesting. Right. Well, way to find that silver lining way. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's, just, he's putting himself on the line for science. That's, you know. He's... That's right. Yeah, so absolutely. noble. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Here's a real short one from popularmechanics.com, and the title is The Space Force Has a Space Horse, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah, because horses can go where SUVs and ATVs can't. Okay. So the U.S. Space Force, America's newest military branch, has its eyes on the stars and its hooves firmly planted on Earth. <laughs> 
The Space Force, entrusted with the absolute latest in military technology, also relies on a millennia-old vehicle, which is a horse named Ghost. And Ghost is an American quarter horse. He was acquired from the Bureau of Land Management and is currently being trained for Vandenberg Air Force Base's Conservation Working Horse Program. Ghost was part of a BLM program, which captures wild mustangs and tames them for work with humans. And here, BLM stands for the Bureau of Land Management. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a little different. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ghost and his handlers patrol the sprawling Vandenberg Air Force Base, which is the fifth largest Air Force Base in America. Located in Southern California, the 99,600-acre base incorporates varied terrain such as a coastal hill country and beaches, and it's the only Air Force base in the country with such a program. Hmm. So the program has several horses, of which Ghost is the newest. Wait, so they're patrolling the base but not preparing to go into space? Right. We're not imagining horse astronauts here. Like, this is just sort of on on the base. Okay, so this is just administrative waste and pork (laughs) and a cute story. Okay, that's fine. I just wanted to set my expectations appropriately here. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, they're base-based Space Force horses that don't go to space, you know? Yeah, so the horses of the Military Working Horse Program do everything from enforcing fish and game laws to managing endangered species, which, you know, is implied they have a human handler helping them with that. But Yeah, I was going to say, they don't enforce that. They're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it would I, be awesome if they could. You get like a horse out there with a little siren and he's making arrests. Yeah, he's handing out tickets yeah. and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, tr- yeah. I would trust a horse to do that. More than than a human. (laughs) (laughs) 2020. So speaking of uh, anthropomorphizing horses, as a horse, (laughs) Ghost can conduct perimeter sweeps across Vandenberg in places that SUVs and even ATVs Hmm. can't go. And the Popular Mechanics article just ends with, good job, Ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. Well, I have another real quick one as well. This one is from Bloomberg about the current coin shortage. Have you guys seen signs at your stores and stuff about this? I've heard. Yes, I have. Yeah. So basically, there's a shortage of coins, but it isn't actually a shortage. In fact, as of April, the U.S. Treasury said that there were about 47.8 billion coins in circulation compared with 47.4 billion last year. So there's actually more coins now than there ever have been before. The problem is that it's actually a slowdown. It's basically accidental hoarding because no one's shopping, no one's going out and doing business. They're staying at home. They're stuck in wallets. They're trapped in stores that aren't open. And so what you have is a problem of liquidity. The coins can't get to where they need to be. And so you've had a lot of signs of this. Retailers asking people to pay an exact change. A couple of banks have offered bonuses. Like the Community State Bank in Wisconsin was offering a bonus $5 for every $100 in coins that you came in and exchanged for cash. Hmm. So they're really kind of desperate for coins in a lot of businesses. Weirdly, Coinstar, the business that trades coins for cash but takes a huge percentage, they say this problem hasn't happened abroad. They run kiosks in Japan and Canada and many European countries. And really only America is having this issue right now. Yeah, that's that's a popular refrain these days. Right, right. <laughs> uh, they said possibly it's just because we rely on cash more than other countries do. A Federal Reserve study said that 49% of transactions under $10 are still cash. 
which I don't ever use cash. So that kind of blew my mind. But I know people who are like, I don't ever use cards. So I guess, you know, we balance out. Yeah, that's weird, too, because I'm familiar with Japan being a very currency-based system as well. They've got tons of vending machines. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have like 100 yen, 500 yen coin denominations to kind of really facilitate that. But it's been a while since I've been in Japan, and they may have been more digitized. Right, they might have switched to plastic. Well, and this article kind of goes into one of the hardest hit industries, which is laundromats. They said only about 20% of laundromats have card options, Mm -hmm. but they interviewed a guy, Charles Bukas of Coin Hut Laundromat. He says right now he's driving every single morning to six Chase Bank locations in search of quarters. And out of those six banks, total he gets each day is about 120 bucks. Hmm. And he says the problem is actually because, of course, you know, he has the change machine. People put their bills in. He gives the quarters. The quarters go into the laundry machine. So presumably he should be mm-hmm. getting them back. But he says about yeah. $100 a day walks out the door. People use the change uh... machine and just take the quarters elsewhere. They just know this is a place I can get quarters. Wow. And so uh... he's only I mean, he gets he's not losing money, but he is losing coins. And so that's sort of his problem right now. And he says if it keeps up, he's going to have to shut down his change machines entirely and personally stand there and take people's paper money and then put the quarters into the machines himself so he's not losing them anymore. Dang. But they do say it's, you know, it's kind of a problem that's already on the way out. They say, you know, the circulation's improving. People are aware it's an issue, so more people are turning in coins. And it's probably going to sort itself out pretty quickly, unlike a lot of the other issues that we're facing. <laughs> um, so your, your laundromat will be good to go. But they also say this may cause a lot of laundromats to finally make that push to switch to card and plastic options, which, you know, frankly means they can charge more per load. So you would think that they would want to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot more like, you know, millennials or fresh college students or whatever. That's going to just spur adoption there, too. Sure. They're not going to be interested in quarters at all. Like, what are these old relics? No. I don't even know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. Some of the articles we did not get to on DamnInteresting.com. The Tragedy of Art's Greatest Supermodel. Our Cosmic Horizon is both unreachable and closer than ever. And why we're a lot better at fighting cancer than we realized. So all that, plus all the articles we talked about today, plus lots more, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you'd like to support our humble little podcast, you can go to Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.